following message is from North Place Church. We hope the next few moments will allow you to experience Christ, community, and compassion. For more about North Place Church, find us online at northplacechurch.com. Today, as a church, we are beginning what will be our 93rd year as a family of faith in this community of Saxe. And we could be, I believe, stepping into the most significant year of this church's history. Somewhere in the next few months, we will transition our worship services to our new facilities, a place of promise, a place that will position us to reach our fullest potential in impacting this region for Christ. I have a sense because of of the season that we are entering into that, that, that some of the prophecies that have been spoken into this body about this body, over this body, for those 93 years are going to come to fruition in the near future. Uh, This church is 93 years old, and during times of, about to be 93, and during times of great seasons of prayer and fasting, there have been, there have been prophetic words about what God would do, words of encouragement, words of hope, words of faith about what God wanted to do here. During seasons of revival, there have been strong impressions from God uh, confirmed in multiple people's lives that there was something to anticipate about what God wanted to do in North Place Church. Nearly nine years ago, my family moved to be the pastor of this church because we had that same sense of what God wanted to do through this body in the Dallas-Fort Worth region. And I believe just recently, 24 months ago, I was in a very disappointed place. I was in a disheartened place in leadership and and not seeing things happen the way I thought they were going to happen. And I went and sat with someone I believe to be an elderly statesman, a a prophetic type, older man who leads a church uh, in another state. And I sat with him and I just shared my heart. And in his encouragement to me, right before I left, he challenged me with some of the same things I I'd kept hearing from other people that don't even know this man about what God wants to do among us. And he gave some time constraints on when those things would begin to happen, when, when we should begin to look for those. And those moments overlap with the beginning of this year and specifically with the timing of us moving into our new facility. But with all of that excitement, with all of that, under, uh, that, that anticipation, you need to understand that disunity can disrupt the plan of God. Disunity can derail this church's destiny. Now, to my knowledge, I have no reason to dedicate today's message to the con concept of unity. I'm not aware of any big rifts or major divisions. For the most part, things are rocking along relatively okay, and that's all good, but we don't need to be lulled to sleep in the lap of Delilah and forget that we have a real spiritual enemy who would love nothing more than to turn us against each other right now and derail the plan that God has for us in the future. At the end of last year, in the beginning days of this year, I had a gentle nudge as a pastor from the Spirit of God to mark the first Sunday of 2014 with a call to protect the unity of this church. Scripture tells us in multiple places that the Spirit of God loves unity. It tells us that God in His presence is attracted to an environment of unity. In other words, unity is the prerequisite 
prerequisite for the presence of God. What God has called us to do as a church, where He is leading us in 2014 and beyond, cannot be accomplished by the work of human hands. It cannot be engineered by the creativity of the human mind. Like Zechariah said, it is not by our might or by our power, but will happen by the Spirit of God. His Spirit, His presence, His anointing is the only way we will see the preferred future of God realized in our individual lives or in this church. So we and our futures require the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God requires that we be walking in unity. It's make or break. Unity is the make to our vision and disunity is the break to our preferred future. And if unity is that essential, I want us to examine and see how we can guard or protect the unity. The Bible calls it the unity of the Spirit or the unity of the saints. And I want us to see how we can protect the unity of the Spirit among the people of God. Paul tells us how to do that practically in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. So I want you to look with me there. And we're going to look at some other supporting verses that, 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 that undergird uh, what Paul says here. But we're going to spend the majority of our time in these few verses at the beginning part of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, he was actually in chains in prison for his ministry and his love for Jesus when he wrote this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism... One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 3, he admonishes us, challenges us to make every effort. That word every effort in some versions is translated to be eager, be diligent in, be earnest for Keeping the unity of the Spirit or guarding or protecting the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort to guard or protect the unity of the Spirit. This morning, uh, I was reading. I got my early coffee about 5 o'clock this morning in the coffee shop. And I was, I was thumbing through my uh, phone just checking the daily headlines. And just this morning, I read across an update on the case of an army brigadier general accused of eight criminal charges, including forcible sodomy, indecent acts, violating orders, and it listed all of them, and charge number eight summed up the previous seven charges. Here was charge eight, conduct unbecoming of an officer. And at first glance, I read right past that news article because sadly, stories like that are old news. It seems like every day in our culture, another person from some high office has tarnished their own reputation and disgraced their office by poor conduct. Recently, too many politicians and pastors, judges or generals, people from offices that historically have demanded our respect, it seems that those people have chosen not to live a life worthy of the calling they have received. In Paul's words, in the general's case, one of his many charges was conduct unbecoming of an officer. 
And I want you to notice the value in that charge is not placed upon the man. The value of that charge is placed upon his office. Conduct unbecoming of an officer. Who is an officer? An officer is a man who holds an office. So the charge is the fact you have defaced the office that you have been placed into. The value is on the office. The office of the general is worthy of moral vigilance and higher character. The office of brigadier general deserves a better man. It merits a person with a higher level of integrity. The value of the office should have kept the man from desecrating it. To us, uh, Paul says it this way. His word is that this man did not walk worthy of his calling. He didn't walk worthy of his office. The greatness of his calling should have constrained him to lead a life worthy of his call. But it didn't. And now the public has not only a lot less regard for him as an individual, but it's another black eye for the U.S. military. Being a brigadier general is a high calling, but being a follower of Jesus Christ is a higher calling. In Ephesians 4 and 1, Paul urges us as Christ followers to lead a life worthy of the calling of being a Christ follower, a Christian, a child of God. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to deserve our place in God's favor. It means that we should recognize how much our place in God's favor deserves from us. The focus is not on our worth, but on the worth of our calling, on the worth of our office. If we had time today, we could look at the richness of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, where Paul eloquently describes our position in Christ, our calling or our office as his children or his followers. Quickly, in Ephesians 1, 4, God says, the word says, God chose us before the foundations of the world to belong to him. In chapter 1, verse 5, it says he called us or predestined us to be his children and that that place or office of being his children makes us heirs of all the Father owns. In verse 7 of chapter 1, it says he sent Christ to atone, to pay for, to redeem us from our trespasses so that we could have a way into that place or that office or that calling. In verse 13, chapter 1, it says not only did he send Christ, but it says he sent the Holy Spirit to seal the work of God in our hearts to preserve us for all of eternity. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, he promises to spend all of eternity increasing our joy in the immeasurable riches of God's grace. This isn't just a here and now thing. He's going to do it forever and forever and it's going to build on top of each other. And then he says in a Ephesians 3.10. And that ought to sound familiar because Ephesians 3.10 is the verse we've used as a theme for heart for the house and we keep going back to it in our videos and in our printed material. It says God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Out of all the things God has picked to declare his wisdom and his glory, he picked us. His church, imperfect people who are broken and dysfunctional, he picked us because he loves the church. He picked us to declare his glory. Chapter 1 verse 12 says he has destined and appointed us to live for the praise of his glory. In other words, the privilege and purpose of our Christian calling is greater than the privilege and purpose of an army brigadier general. The office of a general is a calling from man. Our calling is from God. The general attains earthly status and authority. 
our calling attains divine sonship and we become the beneficiary of all the Father owns. The office of general will last two or three decades. Our calling will last an eternity. If the military court will court-martial one of its own for conduct unbecoming of an officer because that office deserves a greater passion for integrity, then how much more should the honor and privilege of being made a Christian shape our lives? You're probably saying, Pastor, that's a good word for the time and season in our culture, but I thought we were going to talk about unity and disunity. What is all this about? Well, we are talking about unity and disunity. In order for us to put forth the effort necessary to guard and protect the unity in the spirit, we have to understand what is at stake if we don't. Our future is at stake. The prophetic blessing of God upon this church is at stake. The integrity of our Lord is at stake. The integrity of this church is at stake. There is a lot at stake if we don't guard, protect the unity among us. Ephesians 4 and 3. The way to lead a life worthy of our calling is to make every effort to keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. In verse 2, Paul gets really practical in telling us how to maintain the spirit of unity. Listen to what he says. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. There are four things. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Bearing with one another. Long-suffering. Long-suffering is a word. Forbearance is a word we don't use a lot. But to forbear somebody means you're putting up with difficult people. You're overlooking the things in their life that are difficult. Forbearance means I have a right to something I choose not to exercise. You did something to me that made me angry and I have a right to be angry. Uh, From logic, I have a right to hold a grudge. But if I'm walking in a spirit of forbearance, I choose not to exercise the right to be angry or to hold a grudge. And Paul gives us these four things. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance as the qualities of a Christian body that are necessary in order to maintain a spirit of unity. And not one of them is natural to me. Not one of them is natural to you. They are the work of the Spirit of God inside of all of us. Let me look at the first two. He groups them in pairs. Humility and gentleness. Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received to be completely and be completely humble and gentle. The knowledge of our high calling, our standing before God as his child, should humble us. Christian humility is a disposition to think less of ourselves and highly of Christ. Christian gentleness is the demeanor of a person who walks in humility. You cannot be gentle if you are not humble. When you become aware of the privilege that you have been granted to be called his son or daughter, the fact that you have access into the divine presence of the king of the universe, when you understand that favor, it will humble you. Your regard for your own knowledge will be small and humble because you have seen the all-knowing God. Your regard for your own strength will be small and humble because you will have seen the all-powerful God. Your regard for your own righteousness will be small and humble because you have seen the holiness of God. And since the Christian is more God-oriented than they are man-oriented, there is no superiority or authority that you have over another person that will ever puff you up. 
Because you understand where you stand against the backdrop of the holiness of God. None of us are, are worthy. And if you get that and you understand the favor, you will never be able, no matter how lowly they are, to look down your nose with condescension on another human being. When you understand your place in God. If an ant measures himself against the Rocky Mountains, he will never be able to boast over a flea. It's all about comparison and relativity. And if you are able to look down your nose at somebody, you've been comparing yourself to the wrong backdrop. You look at yourself in the light of God, there will be a humility and a gentleness that comes with it. The next two words that Paul mentions as key ingredients to us being able to guard this spirit of unity is patience and forbearance. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient Bearing with one another in love. Humility is a prerequisite of patience. Arrogant, haughty people are not patient. The more highly you think of yourself, the more quickly you think you deserve something, you're entitled to something, or you should have been served more quickly. Statements like, who do they think they are to keep me waiting like this, does not come from humble people. But if you have a humble heart... It won't feel so inappropriate when you are not treated like a dignitary. If you have a humble heart, you will not be so impatient when the fruits of your labor do not manifest right away. If you have seen the majesty of God's holiness, you are aware of your own minuteness and your own sinfulness and you don't presume to deserve special treatment. If you've seen the magnificence of God's grace, you know that He will give you strength to wait and will in turn turn all of those delays around into strategic maneuvers to use your brokenness for His glory. Another way of describing the result of humility is forbearance. Bearing with one another. Bearing is enduring. Just like gentleness is the byproduct of humility, forbearance is the byproduct of patience. You can't be an enduring, forbearing, long-suffering person without patience. You can't be a gentle person without humility. But we have to be all of that as a body with each other in order to guard and protect the spirit of unity in this church. I love Paul's honesty here. I love the fact that he admitted that we have to endure one another. It frees me from the hypocrisy of thinking that I or anyone else in this church is perfect. You don't have to endure perfect people. You don't have to forgive perfect people. And the fact that Paul said maintaining the spirit of unity in the family of faith is going to call for you enduring one another was Paul's acknowledgement that no one among us is perfect. He is not naive. He knows there are a few people at North Place Church who are grumpy and critical or unreliable and finicky. And he knows there is a lead pastor at North Place Church who has some gaping holes in the fabric of his own sanctification. So he counsels us this is not it's not counsel on how perfect people can live together it's counsel on how real people imperfect people like us can guard the unity of the spirit and one of the ways we do that is enduring each other in love how can you keep on caring about a person who doesn't like you or a person who doesn't share your preferences of worship styles or music 
or a person who poses you and wants to frustrate your dreams? How do you maintain the unity of the Spirit with them instead of becoming hostile or cold? Paul's answer to those common questions was, be humble in spirit so that you can patiently endure their differences and their sins. A man of humility is keenly aware of his immense debt toward God and how he has dishonored God through his own unbelief and disobedience. He is also keenly aware of God's amazing grace, like we sang a moment ago, that saved a wretch like him. A man who understands that is a man of humility who cannot easily or quickly retaliate when he is wronged. When you find somebody that retaliates quick, holds a grudge quick, it's almost as if we have forgotten our place before God. A man that walks in humility knows that before God, he doesn't deserve anything better. And he knows that if he returns evil for evil, he would be saying to God, God, you were a fool when you were patient with me. You were a fool when you endured my sin and returned good for my evil. And walking in that kind of spirit would bring greater disgrace and discredit on our high calling of being a Christ follower than forced sodomy brought on the office of an army brigadier general. Let's not be proud, but humble and gentle. And let's not be impatient and resentful, but long-suffering and forgiving. The unity that Christ died to create among his followers will become real in our church and we will not bring disgrace or discredit upon the great God who called us to be his sons and daughters if we walk in humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Jesus knew what was at stake if his followers didn't walk in unity. He knew that unity was the ingredient to everything he desired becoming a reality. That's why when he prays for his disciples and then expands that for all believers in John 17, the one thing he prayed for is that we would be one. John 17, 11, he is specifically praying here for the, the 12 disciples. And he says, I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is about to send into heaven. He's about to leave these men that he has poured his life into that will establish this church that he so passionately loves. And he could have leveraged his relationship with God, the authority of his name, to pray anything. And the one thing he prays for before he leaves is, God, let them be unified with each other and one in us. And then he expands his prayer in verse 20 to all believers. John 17, 20, my prayer is not for them alone, not those 12 men. But I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I, in them, I am in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. His one prayer before he left 
Because he understood that unity was the prerequisite for the presence of God. He prayed for our unity. Now there's a common psalm that most of you are familiar with. And when I read it, it's only three verses. It's a song, a psalm. It's Psalm 133. And when I read it, you will have heard it. But it makes some powerful promises about unity. Let me read it to you. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like the precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Now those three simple verses, but I I want you to realize there's some powerful promises made about unity. The first one is that unity is the prerequisite to God's anointing, His Spirit, and His presence. God is attracted to an environment where His people are unified. It's almost as if He cannot resist an environment where people are joined together around a heart of unity, a common cause, a common purpose, a common vision, common convictions, when there is a people that share that together. He invades that environment. How blessed it is when brethren dwell together in unity because what happens? The anointing comes. The presence of God comes. It's the prerequisite. Here's a second promise in Psalm 133. The anointing that came upon Aaron's beard is not what stands out. It's not that there was an anointing upon a priest. I mean, Aaron was the priest, the forerunner of the Levites, and it was very common for them to be anointed. But the fact that there was, the key that stands out here is the abundance of the anointing. The people get together in unity and the anointing oil runs down his hair from his beard and begins to penetrate his collar and down into his robe. The psalmist is making a point that there is an abundance of the anointing. There is an abundance of the presence of God. There's an abundance of the Spirit of God that happens when God's people dwell pleasantly together in the spirit of unity. Unity is the prerequisite to the presence of God. And when we join together as a family of faith in unity, it's in that environment where there is a supernatural abundance to the presence of God among us. And then thirdly, you may read that last verse and say, well, that's all nice, but if you don't understand Middle Eastern geography, but it says, it is as if the dew of Mount Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Unity is the prerequisite to the presence of God. And when we are bound together in unity and the bonds of peace, to use Paul's words, then there is an abundance of the anointing that comes. But then verse 3 reminds us that what God does in that kind of environment is supernatural and miraculous. If you understand geography, you know that Mount Hermon was 100 miles from Mount Zion. Mount Zion was located in Jerusalem. Mount Hermon was 100 miles or so from there. It is logically and naturally impossible for the dew of Mount Hermon to fall on the top of Mount Zion. Not naturally going to happen. And the psalmist's point is when the people of God get together in unity, there is an abundance of the presence of God that creates an environment for God to do some miraculous things, for God to do some supernatural things, for God to deliver some addictions and and to set some people free and for God to heal some sicknesses and for God to create abundance when there is lack and for God to move some mountains that are in your way and to deliver some chains that keep you bound when there is unity in the body there is an environment for the spirit of God to come in abundance and supernatural things happen the dew of Hermon falls on Mount Zion when we protect the unity of the spirit there is no more essential way to start off the new year 
and to focus on unity. For about a year, the staff and I have been praying about making 2014 a year of spirit empowerment. What does it look like for you to live a spirit-empowered life in the marketplace? I mean, fully possessed by the Holy Spirit like the, 20, or like the New Testament saint. And what does a worship gathering look like when it is spirit-empowered? What's it going to look like at North Place Church? And we want to investigate that and talk about that in 2014. And if we're going to talk about in 2014 a year of spirit-empowered living, we cannot even begin to talk about spirit-empowered living until we address the prerequisite of the spirit empowering us, and that is unity. In Acts 2, it says that they were in one mind and one accord when the Holy Spirit came upon them. The mountain, of the dew of Hermon falls on Mount Zion. Supernatural things happen when God's people get together in unity. One mind and one accord. Uh, rushing mighty winds come to the environment where God's people are joined together in unity. What unity is not? Unity is not uniformity. To be unified with somebody does not mean we all have to look the same thing, like the same thing, worship the same way, like the same kind of music. Unity is not uniformity. The more mature I become in my walk with God, the older I get, the more grace I begin to walk in. And when, when, I, when I was first in seminary, everything was kind of black and white. There was no gray area. And anybody that didn't agree with me, especially in an area of theology, would, ought to be ready for an argument because I was ready to argue. The older I get, the more gracious I'm willing to be towards people who don't see the world through the same lenses as I see them. Unity is not uniformity. And diversity is not division. There are a lot of diversity among us as a body. Some of us are quiet and some of us worship that way. Some of us are loud and some of us worship that way. And we need to come to a place of maturity as a family of faith that we understand we don't have to be uniform to be unified and our diversity is not division. There is a Christian maturity when it comes to unity that says my brother and sister in Christ may look at life through a different set of lenses that I do but I don't have to look down my nose in condescension and arrogance with them. I can look at them with humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. And that environment creates and protects the spirit of unity. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm talking about inside the context of the body of Christ. There are things in our culture. I'm not telling us to be unified over things that undermine the deity of Christ. I'm not telling us to be uh, uh, unified over things that undermine the inerrancy of Scripture. I'm not telling us to be unified over things that are politically correct in our culture that are not in alignment with the Word of God. When it comes to those things, outside the family of God, I would rather be divided over truth than united in error. So don't listen to, don't take what I'm saying and apply it to everything. There is a context about what I'm saying when I'm talking about walking in unity. It's walking in unity among the family of faith on the context of Scripture. When we can create that environment, powerful things happen. Pastor Bear, I'm going to ask him to come if he will, and I want to read one more scripture. The most powerful prayers I've ever been a part of praying, the most powerful prayers that have ever been prayed for me, have been prayers of agreement. 
Matthew 18, 19 says, Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Here is unity. When you're together with other people around the purpose of Jesus, he comes. Just two or three of you. And when those same two or three people get together in faith and believe God, stand on his word, mountains are moved. The dew of Hermon falls on Mount Zion. Supernatural things happen when there is an atmosphere of unity that creates an abundance of the Spirit of God. I want us to believe for that in 2014. I'm ready for a year of miraculous unity, saturated by the power of the Holy Spirit Where the power of God moves among us in biblical proportions. I want us to do something before we leave. I want us to, in an act of unified worship, set a tone for the entire year. And place Jesus at the center of everything. The only way you'll ever be able to get along and have patience and forbearance and gentleness and humility is to quit focusing on what everybody else does that doesn't measure up to your expectations and put Jesus at the center. That's the only way we're going to make it as a diverse church, a church that's not uniform around everything, giving grace and space for people to be different from us, is to keep Jesus the center. Not a certain style, not a certain person, but Jesus. And so we're going to I so believe God wants to do something among us this year. My heart has been anticipating for nine years. I don't want disunity to unseat, derail the destiny God has for us. I want us to protect the unity of the Spirit. I almost didn't say this, but I didn't really want to leave on this note, but I feel like I have to. Stand with me if you will. Let me give you this one. Heed this one warning. Heed this one warning. I really felt when I was preparing for this message that God encouraged me to share this with someone. I don't believe there are many people it fits, but if it fits, receive it today. For those of you that are bent towards a cynical or critical nature, I'm not talking about trying the spirits and being wise and not swallowing everything hook, line, and sinker. That's wisdom. But so many people use that line and shroud their cynicism with that religious terminology to drape their cynicism in spiritual language when they just really have a critical spirit. In in 2 Samuel 6, David is the king. The ark has belonged to the Philistines. The ark was the Israelites' tangible expression of the presence of God. And it had been taken captive. And Israel had no tangible expression of the presence of God. Something they could see that said God is with us. Been gone. David, as newly appointed king, brings home uh, the ark. And there's this parade and this celebration. As a part of this parade, David goes back to his roots. He takes off his dignified kingly attire. He puts on the linen ephod that he would have wore as a shepherd boy. And he dances through the streets in the eyes of Michael, his wife, as a half-naked man. He lost his dignity wearing the shepherd. Ephod. He goes back to his roots and he dances and he praises God in the middle of the streets in a praise because the presence of God, the ark of God has come back home. Michael, his wife, did not join in the celebration. She stood in the window, looked down on the parade, and the Bible says she despised David in her heart. 
And then when David came home to bless his house, she mocked him. She made fun of him. She criticized him. Because you usually criticize what you don't understand. When you're supposed to participate and you spectate, you wind up casting judgment on it. And so, the Bible says in verse 23 of that chapter that Michael was barren for the rest of her life. I believe there is a connection between a critical spirit and spiritual barrenness. And I wanted, to, I wanted to guard your heart. I wanted to, if you're bent critically or cynically, yes, be wise. Don't swallow everything hook, line, and sinker. Test the spirits. Line it up with the Word of God. But don't use that as a shroud for excusing a critical spirit that will make you live a spiritually barren life. It is human nature to criticize what you don't understand. God mature us to humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, diligently guarding the spirit of unity and the bonds of peace. I want the prayer team to come if they will. It would be, we would be amiss today if we talked about an atmosphere of unity that creates the powerful environment for the mountain, the dew of Mount Hermon to fall on Zion. For God to do supernatural things and not give you the opportunity to receive the benefits of the prayer of agreement today. So these people on this prayer team want to pray the prayer of agreement. Haley and I in just a moment are going to make our way to the back of the building and greet any guests that are here today that would have a chance to stay around and give us that privilege. Pastor Bear is going to Lead us in a time of worship that simply says, Jesus, be the center of it all. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Will you turn your countenance their direction and give them peace? God, will you help us lead a life worthy of our calling? And help us guard the spirit of unity with humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. In Jesus' name, amen. These altars are open. Thanks for listening to this message from North Place. Feel free to share or duplicate this message. If you are in the Dallas area, we would love to connect with you personally. We gather every Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m.